turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. And from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open there to Mark chapter 10 this morning. As we continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, we find ourselves here in this chapter, and uh, we were supposed to be there last week, uh, but Mark filled in, or I'm sorry, Matt Hardy filled in for me uh, last week in preaching, and I'm so thankful for our time in Ephesians chapter 2. What a sweet uh, and clarifying reminder for us there in Ephesians chapter 2 last week. I'm thankful. Uh, This morning in Mark chapter 10, I have to tell you, this is a difficult topic for me to preach on. Really, it's a difficult topic, I think, for anyone to think through and perhaps even to preach on, but I thought it might be valuable, I hope it is for you, uh, for me to walk you through some of my own theological journey as it regards divorce. I remember at 12 years old, I was searching through the scriptures, searching through my Bible and and, and articles even for the word divorce. And then I, I remember, some of you will get this reference, I remember searching through the AOL directory for definitions of any articles that I could find. And and even all of this happening after divorce struck my home, uh, I was also um, not very aware of divorce at all around me, really, prior to that day. Uh, And yet, uh, even sort of knowing of the existence of divorce, knowing of of the existence of this thing, and then having it happen to my home, I remember, first of all, this. Uh, I remember thinking, divorce just isn't possible. Like, it's just not possible. As a little kid, maybe seven, eight years old, I remember thinking, divorce may technically be a thing, kind of like rocket ships and Disney World, right? I remember, I'm Southern Indiana. For you, Disney World was like a real thing. For me, it was like something that's like technically real, but I'm never going to go there. As a young boy in a southern Indiana town, it just didn't seem like anything I would ever actually experience. Then I would begin, I remember, maybe eight, nine years old, to hear of classmates and their families. And so I began to understand, secondly, that it's something perhaps that really broken families do. And then, 
just a few years later, an absolute catastrophe hit my home. And it launched me into a labor of searching the scriptures. What does God say about, about this thing that I was thought that was technically possible, but so far away? God, what do, you, what do you have to say? And I began to understand first, it turns out it is possible, but it's not God's design. Okay, let me say just briefly, as a 12, 13, 14-year-old coming to that position, that position is not sufficient. It's true, but it's not sufficient. The Word has so much more to say about marriage and divorce. And so along the way, I've come to understand more importantly, it is possible. It may even be wise. But somewhere in the relationship or in the actions of the husband or of the wife or perhaps even both, there's always sin that is in the midst of the breach. Uh, I would just offer three conclusions from a life spent reflecting on divorce. First of all, I hope we can all agree, it breaks things. We're going to see by our time, divorce is the separating of what God has joined together. It's by definition a separating and a breaking of things. Secondly, things may have been broken before the divorce that makes the the, the divorce itself perhaps a wise rescue. And then third, the Lord has provided divorce for the care of the neglected, abandoned, and abused. And yet, Divorce is often, in our culture, not the result of neglect, abandonment, or abuse. I think it is important to share when dealing with such a serious topic, particularly so that we don't make any mistake that that I did as a a young child, and, and really has taken me a long time to grow out of some of this error of looking at those who experience divorce as they themselves have done something automatically wrong and sinful. We need to not make that mistake. We need to allow the scriptures to to correct us and inform us. And yet we're going to notice something very interesting this morning. If you pay attention to the text, and we will, we're going to look very closely. You're going to see that Jesus is confronted with the topic of divorce. Literally, a group of people come and confront him with it while he's teaching the people. And we know that when he, when he went to teach, he went to go and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. And they come into that teaching and they confront him. And when Jesus is confronted with the topic of divorce in our passage this morning, instead of talking about divorce, his words, his focus is to talk about God's design for marriage. I find that fascinating and perhaps corrective for my own journey. For all these years as a child trying to understand what in the world happened to my family, perhaps I was searching for the wrong word. Perhaps I should have gone to my concordance and instead of looking up divorce, I should have looked up the word marriage and learned what is God's good design there. Let's go to the Lord and pray that he would help us to see what's in his word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace and kindness in Christ to teach us, to sit us down, gather us together. 
your willingness to take questions and even step into a trap, and yet you were never trapped. You are wise and you are good. You, we trust your words, and I pray that we would become situated under them before we situate ourselves in our own longings and questions and but what abouts. I pray that we would hear you and that when we hear you, we would learn to trust you and to walk according to your way, Lord. Thank you. Lord, we, we trust you. Your word is grace to us this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. We're going to step our way, and I think we will all be amazed at what God has to say to us. In the beginning, in verses 1 and 2, he leaves one region again. Why, why do we have this, sermon, this, uh, this title for this series, On the Road with Jesus? It's because Jesus is on the road. He's moving from one place to the next. And here he is in this new region, and he sits down and he begins to teach the people Jesus is again in this morning's passage in the region of Herod Antipas. Now, why is that important? I don't think it's a coincidence that the question that the Pharisees bring as a trap is a question about divorce. You might remember in our study a number of months ago, really, at this point, about John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been challenging the divorce of Herod's wife Herodias from her husband so that she could marry Herod. She got a divorce from one husband so that she could go and marry another, and really Herod was probably driving the whole thing. John the Baptist had essentially been saying that Herod and Herodias were committing adultery in their new relationship together. For this reason, divorce was a hot topic in this region, very controversial in the political climate and in the religious climate and certainly among the people who like to talk about what's happening among their leaders. And the Pharisees were surely trying to trap Jesus in the same trap that had caused John the Baptist to literally be beheaded. And here is Jesus being confronted with this dangerous question. Look at the question with me. Verse 2. Pharisees came up, and in, it tells us, in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? There's a few things that I would note from this. First of all, this is our nature. This is the way that we tend to approach the good things of God. Our question, so, tell us what the lawful thing is. Tell us what the guardrails are. As I look at that, that image up behind me here, I'm, I'm thinking, it's like we say, so tell me about the guardrails and how far close I can get to them or how far I can go over them and still be considered to be on the road. Friends, that's foolish. What should we be asking? Where does that road go? Who put this road here? And how can I wind up where it winds up. I want to be on the road with Jesus and his way. Not tell us, is it lawful? Tell me where the boundaries are. God, get me in the middle. I want to go where you're going. That's where they begin. It's where we begin. But note that the question is also addressed from the perspective of a man. Look at it. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his 
wife. This is not the word man in its generic sense. It's speaking of a husband and a wife. As we'll see, there's a significant part of the problem right there in the failure of the Pharisees to understand the teaching of Jesus. Divorce had become an instrument of oppression rather than a provision of rescue from abandonment and abuse and adultery. It's interesting that Jesus didn't bring up this controversial topic as well. It's the Pharisees who come to Jesus in this way. It's the Pharisees who come to Jesus with this question and frame it in this manner. Jesus certainly didn't frame divorce merely from the perspective of a husband. It was other leaders in the establishment that pressed him with this question. And so we shouldn't take Jesus' teaching here as though it were his own outline of the topic. But rather, what Jesus teaches here in Mark is his response to a specific question in a specific region to a specific people's heart in their desire to trap him. I think that's important for us to understand that Jesus does have many things to say about marriage and divorce, but they aren't all contained here. If Jesus were to address the topic in a book or theological treatise, he would surely have brought in more of a comprehensive reflection on marriage and divorce according to the whole of the scriptures and bringing in nuanced sets of teaching and appendices to the book, surely. But that's not what he does here because that's not the question that he was asked. And it's not the hearts that he's dealing with on this Day. In fact, elsewhere, such as on the Sermon on the Mount, or even in Matthew's account on this exchange, he does address divorce more fully. So we should take what he says at face value, but not as comprehensive value. I love the title that James Edwards, you're actually going to hear me quote from him a number of times. He wrote a commentary called the Pillar Commentary on Mark, and he gives Uh, this section of scripture, this title. He calls it Discipleship and Marriage. Now, in my Bible, it's called Teaching About Divorce, but he calls it Discipleship and Marriage. I think that's important. The purpose of Mark in recording this passage for us is not to give us the exception clauses on what allows divorce. That's actually what he's refuting. It's actually the heart issue with the Pharisees on this day. His purpose is to give the way of discipleship. How do we know that? This is what he's been doing the whole time in Mark. He's been saying, this is what it looks like to follow after me. The way of following after Jesus by faith, and specifically in our passage today, in the realm of marriage. That means, listen, This passage is for all of us. All of us. Every single one. Every one of us, men, women, adults, children, married, single, divorced, widowed. It is for all of us this morning. We can all honor and give thanks as we follow after the Lord for his gift of marriage to humanity. We can receive his teaching with faith. We can write songs of joy. And we can walk in lives that seek his design and his purpose in marriage wherever we find it. That means this passage was for all of us. Here's James Edwards. 
in ancient, in, in ancient Judaism, marriage was not regarded as a union of equals for the mutual benefit of both husband and wife, but rather as an institution whose chief purpose was the establishment and continuance of the family and whose chief enemy was childlessness. You see, already the problem in the culture is that Jesus, that Jesus is addressing in our passage is that they first understood of their first understanding and press was to understand divorce rather than, first of all, to understand marriage. Again, James Edwards, Jesus, however, teaches that marriage is not a male-dominated institution, but a new creation of God to which both husband and wife are equally responsible to practice discipleship in lifelong obedience. Marriage is given as a gift. And as we'll see in Jesus' own words, it's for men and women and for the whole of society to honor as the gift that it is. Now, let's look at Jesus' response. Remember, some people came to him, asked him a specific question, and then he goes at that question in verse 3. He answered them, What did Moses command you? So he, he receives a question, and as he often does, he gives a question back. And they respond, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And yes, this is technically true. This is what they could go and find according to the law. Let's consider Moses' command. What the, the Pharisees do is they point back to a particular passage in Deuteronomy 24.1. That might be a passage to, to maybe write down in your margin there or find in your notes there about divorce. And Jesus puts in his first jab by pointing out their hardness of heart. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. I think in our little metaphor about the guardrails, we could say it was because of your hardness of heart that he put up these kind of guardrails for you. But imagine if you just would have stayed on the road. Imagine. Here Jesus gets to the center of the concession of divorce. Matthew's account makes what Jesus is saying here even more explicit. In Matthew's account of this passage, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. He goes into that at the end of the passage. Let me put it this way. Divorce exists because sin exists, or because adultery exists, or because abandonment exists. And adultery and all these things exist because of the hardness of our heart. Divorce does not exist because marriage exists. Let's think about that. And isn't that how we think of it? We just look at the statistics and say, I mean, 50% of the time, right? Like if you get married, you're going to get, you know, some divorce out of it. That's not the design. That's not the sweet way of Jesus. That's not the road that he has built. Marriage is good and a beautiful design by God. Now, I mentioned that the Pharisees referred back to Deuteronomy 24.1. 
In Deuteronomy 24.1, you speak about some indecency. Before I read this, let us, remind, let us remember that this passage, Deuteronomy 24.1, is not the whole of the Old Testament's teaching on marriage and divorce, but rather it appears to have uh, become a sort of favored summary statement that particularly these people, and probably Herod and Herodias, tended to, to grab a hold of in the region. Deuteronomy 24.1 says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. That's that little phrase that was so important to the Pharisees of the time and much of the argument about divorce. Because he found some indecency in her. He writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house, and she departs from his house. The key word is indecency. So what I want to do is just real quick give us a little bit of perspective on two schools of thought that were prevalent in the day that Jesus is addressing. First of all, you have the Hillel school of thought on divorce. This is the most radical school of thought. Basically, a man could divorce his wife for little or no reason. Indecency had lost pretty much all of its meaning and pretty much meant if the man wanted to. Whether she'd spoiled a meal, failed on some household or family endeavor, or endeavor in the community perhaps, or simply he found a woman more beautiful. That's literally a quote by one of the rabbis in this school of thought. The really, the, 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 the eye of what is the definition of indecency is what is indecent to the man, Okay. Of course, the error in this interpretation is that it places the sense of indecency in the eyes of the husband rather than calling the husband to hold up his concern to the design and purpose of God in marriage. What is indecent according to the design of the man's maker, not the man? There's another school of thought, and we can give thanks that this other school existed at least, the Shammai school. There was a far more conservative school of thought. They understood that the phrase some indecency meant some sexual impropriety, certainly committing adultery, or maybe interpreting that a little more broadly than that, certainly. I want to summarize the error of both of these schools with this simple rebuke that I uh, had James share with me as we were talking about this passage last week. James Rep wrote, told me, God did not create male and then create woman as a subject for him to rule. And that was much of the error that was, was sort of standing underneath of the culture right there in that day. Which asked me the question, what about today? What's the contemporary School. Now, we'd probably be making a mistake if we tried to say that there's one contemporary school of thought on divorce. There are many. Surely we've become more egalitarian than the Pharisees, we might think. Well, let me tell you that no contest divorce certainly left my, my mom and my family as desperate and as abandoned as anyone in the Hillel or Shammai school. And yet we're way above that. We sit in judgment over Hillel and Shammai schools of thought. But what is our contemporary school? How do we approach divorce in our culture? 
both for men and women. Divorce has nothing to do with indecency or really an affront to marriage at all so very often. Instead, and I'm speaking in a very generalized sense, in a broader culture, divorce has often become simply an option of convenience. Divorce in the broader culture has become a means by which an individual can escape the reality of responsibility to another to whom they had made a covenant commitment and seek first their own happiness. Perhaps even the word self-fulfillment often shows up in contexts discussing Divorce with little or no regard to a need to grow themselves or sacrifice or, or perhaps even change. Little concern for the damage to their own spouse or even to society. The central question is so often in the culture about the same thing that is the question about everything in our decision making. Well, what will make you the most happy? What will make you the most self Fulfilled. Kent Hughes writes, to be sure, God cares about our well-being. There's nothing wrong with desiring an increasing sense of self-fulfillment. But the path to fulfillment, to well-being, shalom, he says, is not marked by the signs which say my happiness first or self-realization. Let me summarize it this way. God wants you to be happy. He does. This is why he's given us his law, a very revelation of what flows from his own character, a very road for us to walk in with clearly marked boundaries. But our happiness is not often found in the pursuit of our own desires, but in following the way of Jesus by faith. See, our natural means is to be bent and to run off after other things. And we think that's the following after of our own desires that would end in happiness. But rather, we are called to trust that the Lord is good and that he's placed us in a good way to walk. And so that means that the Lord is the Lord of grace and we follow after him in faith. Let's look at how Jesus goes at this question. Verse 6. Verse 6, he says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What does Jesus do here? The first of all, let me say that he confirms the creation account. He holds out for us the, the good way of the creator, God. And he holds out really two things for us to remember about creation. First of all, that the man holds fast to his wife. What does that mean? What's he telling us? That once he's left his family and he clings to his wife, where else would he go? Where else would she go? What he's telling us is marriage is permanent. He's holding out to us the permanence of the beauty of God's design for women and men in marriage. And the second thing is he speaks of the two becoming one. And this is one of the greatest mysteries in all of creation, the two becoming one. 
Marriage is not simply a matter of practicality. It is not a, a pragmatic practice by, simply the, by which we simply propagate society and carry on family names. Marriage is intimate. It's a matter of two becoming permanently together. Prior there was male and there was female. But with marriage, two become one. Do you hear the beauty of the design? Permanence, intimacy. Now, as is the case with the Pharisees here and probably with most of us in the room, that's great. Creation's great. And he looks down and he calls it all good, right? But what about the fall? What about the fall? Well, sin. That's what. <laughs> no wonder Jesus says, but because of the hardness of your hearts, right? Sin is what? Rebellion, hardness of heart. It's in light of the fall and our sin that regularly confirms that we are truly children of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Yes, they fell and all of us have fallen after them. We find ourselves well acquainted with our first parents. That a husband may harm a wife. A wife may wrong a husband and in such a way that divorce may become a means of rescue from abuse or abandonment. But the design, the design of marriage, this has not changed. Jesus affirms the creation design for men and women in marriage. His design, his whole purpose is to image forth the permanent and intimate love of Christ for the church. It remains soon so and affirmed, and it's only amplified by the fall. In redemption, we see the beauty of a spouse's pursuit of intimacy and permanence in the face of the other's sin. One of my favorite books on marriage, and I've said it many times because it's one of my favorite books on marriage, it's also probably one of my favorite books on the gospel itself, is a book called When Sinners Say I Do. There is something glorious about a husband and a wife, a man and a woman standing up and saying, we want to become permanent and intimate, even though I know I bring my sin to the table, and I know he, she does too, because we believe in redemption. We believe in grace. We believe in God's redeeming work, that his work is permanent. His work is intimate, and he will work that work right here in the miracle of our marriage. When pressed with this question on divorce, Jesus turns to the conversation to marriage. He says, let's not talk about the guardrails, let's talk about the road. When he holds out for us these twin excellencies of God's gift for marriage, permanence, and excellency, we ask ourselves, how have we broken and misused the gift? This is part of the human story ever since the fall, the abuse of the gift of permanence and intimacy in marriage. But redemption, the gospel, reminds us that the good gift of marriage remains good. And it's even instructive for our souls and for our culture to hold forth an image not only of permanence and intimacy, but also of Christ and the church. Now let's look at how Jesus instructs his disciples to follow after him. At the end of our passage today, 
Jesus instructs his disciples in the house in verse 10. The disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And she, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, Mark's narrative and teaching are, again, they're short and they're punchy. They're shorter than even the other record of this. There's something that Mark is trying to tell us in his account of what Jesus has to tell the disciples here in the home. The disciples ask questions that's important because Jesus' previous answer is to the Pharisees, and here he teaches the disciples more fully. He dealt with their hearts, and now he's dealing with the hearts of the disciples. His previous answer is true. But it's not the whole take on the matter. It was addressed to a specific evil intent of the Pharisees' hearts, and now he's with the disciples, and we're with him, and we listen to him. Jesus is simply taking what he said about the permanence and intimacy in what the disciples had heard him say to the Pharisees, and now he's going to apply the commandment on adultery to the question of permanence and intimacy. If a man or a woman have no cause for divorce, and then they run off from one's spouse, no matter what happens in a courtroom or certificates or contracts, the person is violating God's design for marriage. And this is the fundamental purpose of God giving us the teaching, thou shalt not commit adultery, to keep us on the guardrails to guard the good gift that he had given us in marriage. Adultery is a sin against the very gift that God has given of marriage. And so to abandon marriage and move on with another is in like kind. There's something else that's beautiful that's happening here. Divorce was viewed as primarily an interaction, even a dishonor of a man, a former husband, and his wife's father. Did you see it? Here's what James Edwards says. Jesus' declaration, however, imputes to women the status of sovereign moral agents. In verse 12, Jesus further establishes a woman's moral agency and responsibility by declaring that if she is responsible for initiating divorce and then remarries, she must bear the full culpability for her action. This is important because it connects two biblical realities, that all people, men and women, are of genuine dignity in the design and purpose of the Lord in all of life, in all of the ways that we follow after Christ. And because of this, we are together, men and women, to bear the responsibility of our own actions, whether they be honorable or sinful. Do you see that Jesus does that in our text here? If a husband leaves his wife, and if a wife leaves her husband, which by and large, other than in this elite that's going on with Herodias and Herod, that was unheard of. It wasn't part of what was even possible at the time, they would have thought. The wrong of divorce causes the man to commit adultery of his wife against his wife, and the wrong of divorce is also the same true of the wife against the husband. This means that if both the man and the woman They may cause harm to one another 
as people with dignity before the Lord. And as people who are to participate together in this great gift of what marriage is. Where the discussion of today has moved on from divorce. I just don't hear many people in the broader culture talking about divorce anymore. As if it is even a conversation piece. Adultery and a long list of other supposed indecencies have sort of taken a backseat. And Jesus presses that divorce that dishonorably breaks what God has brought together may actually be the cause of adultery. The culture's moved on. The culture figures it's won the day here. And honestly, much of the supposed church has failed to search the scriptures and clearly believe and understand the beautiful teaching regarding marriage and divorce. But friends, we, we can't move on. We can't move on from here. In, in, in faith, as the culture moves on to promiscuity and homosexuality and transgenderism and wherever else it might want to go, divorce is a direct affront to marriage itself. It's a direct affront to a good gift from our God. And it's key for the church to, going, to go back and remember and exercise faith by listening to the words of Jesus. So how do we do this? How do we go back and remember well as disciples of Jesus? First of all, by listening to Jesus' teaching here. By, by listening and, and holding up the beauty of God's design for marriage just as Jesus does right here. Again, with James Edwards. The essential thrust of chapter 10 is the inviability of the marriage bond in, in, as intended and instituted by God. Jesus does not conceive of marriage on the grounds of its dissolution, but on the grounds of its architectural design and purpose by God. Human failures do not alter that purpose. Now, I think that's beautiful. What he's saying is the road is not marked out by its guardrails, but by the beauty of where it's going. The road is the road itself, not the guardrails that are there to try and keep you there because you keep wandering off. I wrote in my notes, Selah, sit there. If this is true, that the Lord has a good word for us, we should sit there for a moment rest. Can we sit here for a moment without jumping on to our need for nuance and exceptions and questions? I can offer you this illustration. All of us can understand this, whether you're uh, wherever you are in life. I often ask my kids to do this. I, I say something. Perhaps they've asked me a question, and then I give an answer to their question that, that doesn't really satisfy them. And so what is the next word that comes? You, all of us have done this. This isn't unique to my kids. I did this. But, but what, about, what about when, right? The, the answer that is given is not satisfactory to what we were wanting to hear. And so we begin to press, well, what about, and, and, and what do we, when there's the case of, and, right? And I'll say this often, stop, 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 <laughs> stop asking, listen. Why do I do that? Because I demand that they listen to me, you know, right? No, no, because they haven't heard. 
something that is more important than even their first question. There is a baseline thing that needs to be heard and sat in for a moment before we ask questions. Don't say anything. Just listen. I know there's more to say. I know there's nuance to be given. I know there's questions about the guard rails. I know that there's ditches on either side that we can fall into, but can you listen to what Jesus just said and understand baseline reality? I think we need to do that here. Have we really heard Jesus? Are we listening to what the Spirit has said and inspired Mark to record for us here? Have we heard him tell us that the design and the purpose and the beauty of marriage is found in its permanence and in its intimacy? The design and purpose of marriage is not found in its exceptions and in its grounds for dissolution. The beauty of God's design is found in his design. The father himself said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Stop listening to your brains for five seconds. Stop listening to all of your questions, to all of your pushback. Listen to him. The Pharisees asked a question. They paraphrase some scripture. The disciples press on with a question, but at the heart and center of Jesus' words in this passage is not a teaching on marriage. It's not a teaching on divorce. It's a teaching on marriage. From the beginning of creation, our Lord said, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Thank you, Jesus. I receive that. These are good and right words. What you have said is good. I have questions. You know I have questions. But sin has broken the beauty of your design throughout all of our lives. I have questions. I've had questions for you, Jesus, about what you just now said since my own childhood, Jesus. But the gift of marriage that you've given to us, I believe you. I'm going to listen to you. I believe it's good. But what about redemption, Jesus? And that's one that he doesn't mind. He doesn't mind that question. He was busy talking about that before the Pharisees asked him. What about redemption? Yes, Lord, the fall and our continuance in sin, broken everything that's good and right. What's beautiful and clear has become twisted and convoluted and confusing to us. But oh, what redemption has worked for us. Will we listen to his words? Will we remember and give thanks to his design May we seek to live lives and marriages and in the context of marriage all around us, even when our sin enters in according to the beauty of its design and the faith in redemptive grace. Hear this final word of gospel redemption. Because Jesus has come in righteousness. Because Jesus died as the perfect sacrifice in your place, For all of your sin, 
no matter what part you have to play in this story, he has brought you into a covenant union. Uh, a covenant union for which marriage is a beautiful metaphor. He has brought you into a covenant union with himself that is eternally permanent and gloriously intimate. Thank you, Lord, for your design. We confess, Lord, our own folly. What we have to contribute to this story is the fall. But we rejoice and live our lives by faith in your redeeming grace. Church, let's sit there. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our creator, our maker. You made us, male and female. And you have given to this new creature, this new society, this new people, and all of its children after this good gift of marriage to exist in the midst of us and from which so we, we come, the union of man and woman. And Lord, we have experienced so much heartbreak and we have spoken wrongly and done wrongly. For many, even in this room, we have acted sinfully right in the midst of our marriages or in affront to the very idea of it. But Lord, we know your redeeming grace. And Lord, that you are the restorer of the good design. And the Lord, the, the relationship that we have with you, none shall separate. Thank you, Lord, for keeping us by your word and power by your grace and kindness, by your love, permanence and intimacy. Thank you, Lord. Buoy up your people in this remembering this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.